Welcome to the New Books Network. This is the Nordic Asia Podcast. Welcome to the Nordic Asia Podcast, a collaboration sharing expertise on Asia across the Nordic region. My name is Satoko Naito. I'm a docent at the Center for East Asian Studies at the University of Turku in Finland. I'm very excited for today's topic, which is a very timely and significant one, uh, being the recently announced departure of Japanese Prime Minister Yoshihide Suga. And I feel even more fortunate to be joined by specialist in Japanese politics, Dr. Julio Pugliese. And I'm sure to learn a lot from his expertise. Dr. Pugliese is a lecturer in Japanese politics and international relations at the Oxford School of Global and Area Studies and a part-time professor of EU Asia Studies at the Robert Schumann Center, EUI. So thank you so much for making time for us today, Julio. Uh, thank you so much, Satoko, for having me. It's a pleasure. So Suga's tenure as prime minister will have lasted just about a full year since it was last September that he took over after former prime minister Abe Shinzo resigned. And Suga's announcement earlier this month to not seek re-election to lead the LDP, the Liberal Democratic Party, has been largely met with surprise, I understand. But how, how about you? What did you make of this news? Well, it was, uh, the timing was surprising, but the popularity rate of Suga was already decreasing uh, throughout the uh, late spring and uh, especially Olympian summer. Uh, and it decreased... Uh, along with uh, COVID infection rates uh, rising in Japan, to the extent that uh, by the past few weeks, um, it had dipped the popularity to less than 30%. And when Japanese prime minister's popularity uh, dipped to uh, the 20% range, uh, they're in uh, very perilous uh, waters, uh, because uh, they should expect then uh, uh, long knives uh, from within the ruling party, from within the Liberal Democratic Party. And of course, it didn't bode well for Suga, uh, but he was uh, aiming at winning the LDP presidential elections with such a low popularity uh, rate. Uh, he, he would have gotten a series of challengers uh, rising up, uh, mounting a challenge against Suga. Uh, not just Kishida, who was uh, the one who presented himself earlier on, but uh, also some of the names that we see lining up right now. And so, in a sense, it was in the making. And there is another important factor that we need to consider here. Um, following the um, LDP presidential elections, uh, the prime minister will have to uh, dissolve the lower house and call general elections because the mandate will naturally expire in uh, the autumn of this year. And so the general elections uh, needed uh, a popular face. Uh, and uh, even if Suga had been re-elected uh, as LDP president, uh, he would have certainly uh, led the LDP in very dangerous uh, waters uh, at the general elections, losing seats. And this was, of course, unacceptable uh, to powerful LDP power brokers including mm. Abe Shinzo, uh, mm. who uh, essentially backed, uh, if a bit half-heartedly, you could say, mm. but essentially Abe Shinzo backed uh, Suga as his successor 
uh, in 2020. Of course, the LDP wants to hang on to as many seats as possible. Mm -hmm. But from what I understand, um, historically, they have been in power basically uh, ever since the 50s, uh, almost uninterrupted. Mm -hmm. And I know that off and on, of course, their popularity waxes and wanes, but mm -hmm. there doesn't seem to be a sense that there are really any true potentials amongst opposition parties. But am I wrong in that? Would they have been in danger of losing a leadership position within the government? They would have certainly lost many seats if Suga had stayed in power, precisely because of the fact that he was understood as unpalatable and uh, absolutely detached from uh, the needs of the people. And so, rightly or wrongly, Japanese public opinion imputed to Suga spike of COVID cases. And mm -hmm. uh, Japanese public opinion has also been uh, disaffected uh, by Suga's decision to push forward on the Olympic Games in 2021. And so it's natural uh, for then uh, that dissent to translate uh, at the very least, uh, if not in, an in a higher abstention rate, uh, in um, a um, protest vote. And who would you vote uh, in the event of a protest vote against um, such an unpopular figure? You would vote the opposition. And, and, and the opposition parties would capitalize on that protest. So, it was imperative then for the LDP to uh, find uh, a new face, to start afresh, so to speak, uh, facing then the general elections uh, of um, the end of this year. This being said, I, I agree with you that uh, the LDP has clinged on power since its establishment in 1955, uh, with a brief parenthesis then uh, in uh, the early 1990s. But uh, since uh, uh, the corruption and uh, stagnation that resulted from uh, the burst of uh, the Japanese bubble in the late 80s and early 90s, the LDP had to reinvent uh, uh, itself. Mm. And more importantly, it had to also uh, govern in coalition with uh, the new Komeito, with the Komeito. Mm. And we tend to forget that, uh, you know, the Komeito has been uh, essentially since... Uh, the mid-1990s, a strong uh, basin. It has been a government uh, uh, ruling party along with the LDP, even if in a junior position. But it has also brings along, a, you could say, a relatively constant basin of votes. Because as we know, Komeito uh, voters uh, uh, often hail from Soka Gakkai, this Buddhist uh, religious organization. Mm -hmm. And that uh, allows a degree of stable uh, number of MPs uh, being voted into Japanese diet. The other thing is that, of course, uh, the LDP traditionally, the, the LDP is a container for uh, a conservative uh, political class that ranges from the ultranationalists, such as uh, Takaichi Sanae, or, and you could say Abe Shinzo, who is, should be considered uh, the prince of nationalists. Uh, to moderates and, uh, and you could say liberal voices such as Konotaro and his father. Um, and so it is uh, a uh, party that contains a wide degree of factions uh, that can then uh, refurbish uh, and rebrand uh, uh, the party when uh, certain factions uh, are uh, more powerful than ours to, to then, uh, to then uh, appeal to the general public. Uh, and to co-opt at the same time uh, some of the 
propositions and policies proposed by the opposition. That's how the LDP-dominated political scene has been made possible, because it is a party that has been able to transform itself, as we can see possibly also from what is happening at the moment. To, con to conclude, the opposition, of course, is in tatters, is split, and it's not united. You could say that it's even more multifaced than the LDP. Mm. Um, and uh, it's made up of uh, a number of uh, very different political parties. And now some of them are considering, of course, joining hands with the Chinese Communist Party. But mm. again, if you consider that on the opposition side, there are conservatives in favor of, say, amending the constitution. And on the opposite uh, spectrum, uh, the Japanese Communist Party, you understand, of course, that it's, it's going to be very hard also to govern, even if they go to power not uh, least to also convince uh, Japanese public opinion that they have a coherent manifesto that they can, uh, they can insist upon. But, uh, but losing lots of seats uh, uh, creates malcontent, of course, within the party. And, uh, and make no mistake, if Suga had not resigned and lost, uh, and the LDP had lost seats uh, with his face, then it would have been only natural for the LDP to vote for a new uh, for a new uh, president, um, and this may this would mean that uh, uh, Abe's legacy and Suga's legacy would have been uh, uh, in jeopardy. And so, to avoid that, uh, Abe, uh, together with Aso as well, decided to exert pressure on Suga and say, "Okay, you have to resign." We need to back a new candidate, somebody who is not going to, of course, uh, uh, undo our legacy because Suga has been uh, Abe's torchbearer um, and prepare for the general elections at the same time. So you see the power games are not just vis-a-vis -vis public opinion, but they're also power games within the LDP to keep up uh, a balance of power that favors uh, uh, certain factions uh, or certain legacies vis-a-vis uh, -vis others. Right, I want to get back to the big behind the scenes power players, Abe Shinzo, of course, being the most prominent one, but can you first talk about the potential successors? So to add something to um, something I had forgotten, it should be stressed and mentioned the fact that Suga is of course uh, a technocrat, mm. uh, meaning that he was, the two-go guy handling bureaucratic appointments and handling the bureaucratic machine under the Abe government. He was Abe's chief cabinet secretary throughout Abe's long tenure. Mm. And, and Suga, of course, um, is a very, from my understanding at least, and this is my opinion, is a very poor communicator um, and uh, very uncharismatic. Uh, and this also certainly further um, informed the decision to do without him and also the fact that he was very unpopular. Mm. The power players uh, who are like rising up to the presidential race uh, are uh, Konotaro, the uh, heir to a political dynasty. Mm. His father was a, uh, a, an LDP power broker, former chief cabinet secretary and former minister of foreign affairs. Um, then we have uh, Kishida Fumio, who used to be Minister of Foreign Affairs um, under the Abe government, 
like Kono in a later stage, um, and who is uh, perceived uh, as more dovish on uh, foreign policy uh, relative to Abe. And, um, and then uh, we see lining up uh, Takaichi Sanai, who has also been a minister in Abe's government. And uh, Takaichi Sanai is is an ultranationalist uh, with um, distinctive views, uh, you could say, on uh, Japan, Japan's uniqueness uh, and, and, of course, uh, a very hawkish uh, attitude towards uh, Japan's security threats, uh, but also a very self-condoning attitude towards uh, the brutal legacy of Japanese empire. Mm. And so when Abe would visit Pearl Harbor and meeting Obama there, Takaichi Sanai would uh, shortly visit uh, uh, the Yaskuni Shrine, uh, which is this uh, contentious, uh, controversial Shinto shrine uh, in the center of Tokyo, a beautiful place, uh, if you ask me, the cherry blossom trees, it's worth a visit. Uh, but where all the war dead uh, who died for the emperor and the making of modern Japan, including uh, the world wars, uh, are enshrined. And this includes uh, the uh, war criminals, uh, notoriously uh, and infamously also uh, the Class A war criminals uh, that were secretly enshrined in 1978. And so this, of course, visits uh, by high-profile uh, cabinet members, um, not to mention the prime minister, are always, control are always problematic in uh, Japan's neighboring countries, especially South Korea uh, and China. Uh, this is the lineup uh, of uh, the main uh, contendants. Uh, Konotaro, Kishida Fumio, and Takaichi Sanai. And um, it's going to be a very interesting LDP presidential election. And the main contenders really are Konotaro and uh, um, Kishida Fumio. There is also um, a, uh, another candidate called Noda Seiko, but I think if it's, it's for the purpose of brevity, let's keep it simple. And uh, my money is on Konotaro, but um, he faces a challenger in, uh, in Kishida Fumio. And there's a lot of factional horse trading and uh, political considerations uh, as well that to take into consideration uh, together with uh, uh, popularity rates. Right. Uh, you mentioned Takaichi Sanai. Yes. Um, and I understand, I think you mentioned, so she has Prime Minister Abe's support. Is that right? Yes. So this is an interesting uh, kind of support. I would call it a tactical support. Mm hmm Abe knows that Takaichi is not going to become the next LDP president. I see. If you ask me, she's nuts. And you know, <laughs> Abe at least is pragmatic. Uh, he can be, you know, uh, a wolf in sheep's clothes, uh, mm -hmm. as you say. But, but Takaichi is, is, is larger than life. And uh, she is famous for um, blunders, including uh, lapsus lingue. And, and so it is high time that Japan gets a, a female prime minister, but uh, uh, I hope, uh, I hope uh, that Takaichi won't tarnish uh, really the, um, that opportunity for gender equality, because then it will set a negative first example. And I think that popularity rate is relative, relatively low, and she's not widely supported, of course, in the LDP, because she's been a French candidate. And so what Abe has done is that he has supported her but he's supporting her as a means to convey a message that he will support and his faction, which is the largest in the LDP, 
should support uh, and should put its political weight uh, on a candidate that does not undo Abe's political legacy. And so this is part of horse trading. Abe's support of Takaichi is possibly going to be negotiable as long as Kishida, for instance, changes his attitude in favor of greater continuity with Abe and Suga's policy goals. And so this is why Kishida reined in his earlier dovish comments vis-a-vis, say, for instance, China or Japan's relations with its Asian neighbors to emphasize the importance of the security challenge uh, that Taiwan faces. And this mm. is in continuity with uh, Abe and, uh, and Suga and, uh, and his predecessors. And he has highlighted, of course, the challenge that China poses to Taiwanese and Japanese security. And at the same time, uh, he has also called for greater defense spending. Uh, Kishida has also famously called uh, for a, a resumption of uh, expansive fiscal uh, measures. And so this, again, is very much in line with Abenomics. So you see Kishida is falling in line with Abe's Abe's, uh, legacy to secure the support uh, from within the LDP of Abe and the likes of uh, of, uh, the Abe faction and and, and from the ranks of the Abe and, and other important conservative factions. It's going, it's going to be very interesting to see how power balance changes, not least because there is a, a, a new type of challenge within VLDP uh, surfacing. And that is that a new generation of LDP lawmakers, let's call them the Young Turks, they're sick and tired of uh, power ending in the hands of the usual suspects, of the usual old LDP power brokers. And so um, there has been... Um, a, uh, an informal network uh, of LDP lawmakers at their uh, first, second, third uh, mandate, so relatively young, who are coalescing to back uh, Kono Taro in all likelihood, uh, because Kono is relatively young as well, he's 58, and Kono traditionally has been a liberal, so he was anti-nuclear, he has uh, been uh, studying in the United States of America, at Georgetown University, so his English is actually quite fluent. His father was also liberal with regards to Japan's legacy of, em- of empire. Mm. The Kono Statement of 1993 was uh, uh, done at the initiation of the Chief Cabinet Secretary Kono Yohei, uh, to atone for Japan's uh, handling of uh, uh, the so-called comfort women. Mm. And it was negotiated uh, secretly, of course, with South Korea, so that the language would please also South Korean decision makers. And Kono was also in favor, famously, for um, imperial succession, succession uh, but allowed for a female successor. Uh, and so, you see, it gets very, very distant from the Abe line. And of course, Kono will also change his views and has kept quiet, for instance, on the reactivation or not of uh, civic nuclear reactors in Japan. Um, And he will have to make uh, a degree of compromises on his beliefs and views. But Abe and the conservative camp uh, views him with suspect uh, because he might undo some of the legacies uh, of the Abe era. 
but Kono may benefit the LDP in the near future during the general election. Yes, because he's also the most popular of, um, of all the faces. He's a, a savvy social media user. Well, him and his, of course, his spin doctors. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, I, I would say that he is the most charismatic of all the candidates lining up. And I had the good fortune of hearing him uh, giving a presentation uh, when I was a PhD student in Cambridge. It was actually only four of us because he was an MP back then. Uh, it was uh, about 10 years ago. And his English is really fluent. Mm. And he's very smart and very, very driven. Mm. You could feel the charisma firsthand. I see. The key characteristic that Suga lacked. Absolutely. And the same applies, in a sense, also to Kishida. He's not very charismatic. I see. So charisma and uh, good communication skills, these are things that will be important going forward, maybe precisely because of what happened in the last couple of years with, with the COVID pandemic. Absolutely. And handling Japan's international uh, agenda will also be high on the prime minister's uh, duties. The uh, economic fallout from the pandemic uh, is certainly something to keep an eye on. And that's why we hear Kishida pushing for uh, expansionary fiscal measures. But um, yeah, it remains to be seen whether uh, Suga's successor will be equally passionate about uh, digitalization and green uh, technology and uh, fighting climate change. I am of the opinion that these are uh, international trends, really, when uh, agenda of uh, new green economy and uh, the digitalization, these uh, go actually hand in hand. And advanced econo uh, mature economies, such as the Japanese one, uh, has unveiled measures uh, pretty much at the same time and of the same entity um, relative to the European Union, uh, the UK, and also the United States of America. So. Suga has been a strong proponent also in his uh, years uh, uh, as chief cabinet secretary for a digitalization agenda. And I imagine that no matter the success service will uh, continue unabated uh, together with um, a push for um, a new green deal or a, a greener economy. Right. Actually, I wanted to ask you about these initiatives. Prime Minister Suga made a big deal about trying to do away with Japan's kind of famously archaic uh, bureaucratic systems uh, with the digitization. And I understood that Kono Taro was a big part of this as well. And I, I just wanted to ask, but did he make any headway in these other uh, big issues that he wanted to tackle, like renewable energy and digitization? Well, the prime minister has been very uh, uh, ambitious uh, to the extent that the initial uh, goals that he had set uh, in terms of green uh, transformation of the Japanese economy were actually further deepened uh, during the summit that uh, Biden had, uh, had launched uh, at the beginning of his presidency. The problem uh, uh, will be for Japan, of course, uh, squaring the circle between uh, a greener uh, transition that necessarily needs to take place uh, along with, uh, for instance, uh, the reactivation of its uh, nuclear reactors. Mm. And, you know, um, this, is, uh, this is important to remember because it's only a handful, I think still nine or ten nuclear reactors out of 60 that are in operation in Japan. And uh, Japan's reliance on fossil fuels uh, accounts for uh, roughly 87% of energy consumption, um, including coal. You know, we might call it clean coal, 
It's not clean. <laughs> and interestingly enough, Japan has also exported, uh, quote unquote, clean coal uh, capabilities as part of its um, official development assistance to emerging and uh, developing economies. China much more, but uh, you see, it's uh, the proof will be in the pudding. Uh, how much of this transformation will allow for um, a lighter footprint of fossil fuels in the Japanese economy? It remains to be seen because anti-nuclear sentiment is still very strong in Japan. And to have a, a greener economy in the short run, of course, the reactivation of nuclear reactors seems like the, the best option. This is my opinion, and uh, I, would, I should warn your listeners that I'm not an, ex an expert, really, on uh, this matter. So take it with a grain, uh, with a grain of salt. I think that the transition, uh, Japan's transition to a fourth industrial re revolution and uh, to uh, higher end technologies is continuing. This goes hand in hand with the digitalization and the new digital uh, agency and ministry that the Suga government has launched. Uh, is, is one of the legacies that Suga can claim. Kono has pushed for debureaucratizing. Uh, and digitalizing uh, the administrative sector, which uh, is uh, something that Japan needed badly. If you follow Japan a bit, you know that uh, faxes were still accepted. You know that you could still like contact uh, uh, offices by fax. Uh, sometimes it was actually asked of you to, to contact them by fax, and this is <laughs> clearly <laughs> problematic. Or uh, another issue that you, you might have faced in Japan, certifying your identity not with your personal ID card, but with a personal seal, the so-called Hanko. And so the Suga government and Konotaro have uh, tried to do without this menial paperwork uh, with uh, as many as 15,000 types of administrative procedures going through, uh, through Hanko, uh, personal seals. And, um, and I, I, I think that this is something that uh, this government is pushing on to reduce them to less than 100 administrative procedures requiring a hanko. And this is my two cents on your, uh, on your question. Well, getting rid of all of those, uh, all that paperwork would be a welcome change for so many, I'm sure. I know we're pushing the time limit, but I wanted to ask you because you may not be an expert on nuclear energy, but you are on um, not just Japanese domestic policies, but international uh, relations. And I wanted to ask you a couple of questions about um, well, what you think going forward. So whether it's a very hawkish Takaichi, Sadae, or a less so Kono Taro, do you think that, uh, or, or what do you think? Will there be any um, significant changes in the kind of foreign policy that Suga and before him Abe had established? And I'm, I'm thinking specifically towards you know, uh, reaffirming alliance with the U.S., of course, and then the free and open Indo-Pacific. Can you foresee any changes, whether Taro, Kono Taro, excuse me, or Takaichi takes over? Or will this continue, do you think? And I, I suppose I shouldn't keep mentioning Takaichi Sanai because, as you said, the chances of her actually becoming prime minister are rather slim. Right. So these are uh, excellent questions because they are part and parcel of Abe's legacy. The free and open Indo-Pacific, for instance, uh, is really a byproduct uh, of Prime Minister Abe Shinzo's time in government. Uh, and he was 
particularly keen uh, on uh, diplomacy and security. And so the very same uh, diplomats and foreign policy making executive that churned out uh, the free and open Indo-Pacific, uh, which comes from Japan, it doesn't come from the US, this uh, should be emphasized. Uh, and it was Japan that endowed that concept uh, uh, and gifted the US with that concept. And then eventually that concept was shared by others. The uh, foreign policy team responsible for crafting this uh, concept was the very same team that had crafted the, the so-called arc of freedom and prosperity, first other government, uh, and uh, Asia-Pacific Democratic Security Diamond, uh, and the Quad. So these are exactly the same people behind Abe, responsible for these initiatives. And so they are really part of Abe's legacy. It would be natural for a new prime minister to find uh, a set of defining uh, policy hallmarks that would uh, allow for his name uh, to be registered in, in the annals of Japanese political history both on, on the domestic front and on the, on the international front. Every prime minister wants to leave the mark. And so it would be, you would expect that the free and open Indo-Pacific would deserve then less attention. Or the Quad, which is this uh, uh, security dialogue uh, now also at the summit level between uh, Australia, Japan, uh, India, and the United States of America. But what is interesting is that the sheer fact uh, but the free and open Indo-Pacific and the Quad are essentially multinational gatherings and essentially shared by uh, these nations and more. So the Indo-Pacific concept has traveled uh, as far as Southeast Asia, that has where ASEAN countries have their own outlook on the Indo-Pacific, all the way to Europe, where the European Union has its own strategy of cooperation for the Indo-Pacific. And we are going to get uh, today, well, we're going to get in uh, with, with, I don't know if this podcast will be published at a later stage, but by the time it's, it's published, in all likelihood, the commission and the high representative will have uh, announced a joint communication on uh, an EU strategy for the Indo-Pacific. Mm, I see. Um, and so by virtue of having uh, this concept uh, shared uh, with so many other countries, of course, every country has its own definition. It's a bit like Hapo Bijin. You see it from whatever. You know, it's beautiful from whatever. Yes. Angle. <laughs> a Rorschach, uh, Rorschach yes. as well. So what will happen is that uh, the policy legacy, foreign policy legacy in terms of a free and open in the Pacific will stay. It will be declined differently depending on the prime minister. And so Takaichi, you know, uh, uh, if you think of his, her name as well, Taka could read as, as Hawk, mm. <laughs> Hawk number one. Uh. <laughs> I mean, it's different characters, but uh, Takaichi could actually read it, uh, the free and open in the Pacific in a more American view mm. of like containing China much more markedly. Kono or Kishida might actually define the free and open in the Pacific in a more moderate way. Still very suspicious of China, I would say, but this is, now a consensus within the LDP. But the Quad uh, will not be scaled back, uh, but perhaps Japan will be uh, less um, assertive uh, and less inclined to align with the United States position within the Quad, for instance. It might be a bit more suspicious of US-China confrontation because I don't see Japan as uh, still uh, hedging 
and, 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 and taking a step backwards uh, among US-China confrontation. I see Japan as very much aligned with the US, uh, but a new prime minister might actually scale back that a bit uh, for fear of being um, of, of entrapment and taking too much for granted the US uh, support as well. But you might see then over tours uh, elsewhere. You might see uh, over tours to South Korea. I would imagine Kono making over tours to South Korea and try to amend uh, a relationship that uh, badly needs uh, uh, healing. Um, uh, Kono was very much uh, Japan's man when he was foreign minister, and uh, the government of Japan had to, well, uh, the prime minister's office really enforced uh, sanctions, if nominal, against South Korea because of the decision uh, by South Korea to, to enforce uh, a Supreme Court ruling on uh, uh, forced labor during uh, the Greater East Asian War and Japan's occupation of Korea. Kono was very much in line, of course, with the government of Japan, but deep inside, Kono is a liberal and he's much more sellable uh, to Korean public opinion because he acknowledges uh, the brutal legacy of the Japanese empire, something that was less straightforward, let's put it that way, with Abe, mm. and took some convincing. And so I can see, for instance, some legacy foreign policy initiatives between Kono and, in all likelihood, a new South Korean president, mm. because South Korea will also have presidential elections. Right, right. So this is just an example um, of, uh, of what could happen. Okay, so so thank you so much. You've given us so much to think about. And I believe the election for the president, the leader of the LDP, the Liberal Democratic Party, will happen on September 29th. And we'll see which of these uh, names comes out on top. Because of the parliamentary system, whoever wins the LDP leadership will very most likely become the next prime minister. Thank you so much, Julio, for your time today and your expertise and for sharing all of these insights on the current situation in Japanese parliamentary and international politics. My pleasure, Satoko. It's, it's been a delight to be here. Thank you so much. Again, that was Dr. Julio Kuliese, lecturer in Japanese politics and international relations at Oxford School of Global and Area Studies and a part-time professor of EU Asia Studies at the Robert Schumann Center European University Institute. And to our listeners, thank you for joining the Nordic Asia podcast, showcasing Nordic collaboration and studying Asia. Thanks again. You have been listening to the Nordic Asia podcast.